it's also a story of incredible human survival against almost impossible odds. And again and again and again, when I talk to California Indian people and they tell me their family's story, they are descended from a woman who is hidden as a baby in an overturned basket while the entire village was slaughtered by militiamen or soldiers or vigilantes. So California Indian people, through their tenacity and their intelligence, survived this. And that part of the story I found deeply inspiring. And it was one of the things that nurtured and sustained me as I moved during years of research in the archives through a landscape of almost unmitigated horror. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and today I talk to Ben Medley, professor in history at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, with a special interest in the history of Native Americans and colonialism. In this episode, we focus on his book, An American Genocide, The United States and the California Indian Catastrophe which has gotten quite some attention in the US and also been awarded with several prizes. Ben Medley has been a scholar at SCAS during the academic year of 2018-2019 and we are very happy that you could join us for our podcast SCAS Talks. So welcome. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Sure, Natalie, thank you very much for, for having me here today. It was a wonderful experience for me to be at SCAS, not only to develop my work and have time to pursue curiosity-based research, but also to broaden my intellectual horizons and to have so many fascinating conversations, never knowing from one day to the next if I would be learning about Bronze Age archaeological finds in Poland or the development of thought around loans and debt around the world. It was really a memorable and extraordinary year for me. So I thank you for, for bringing me back into the SCAS world, even if just for an hour and via the internet. Thank you. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. So this is a distant recording and you have joined us from LA. And in the context of today's topic, Californian Indians, would you just like to acknowledge what Indian ground you're on right now. Yes, that, that is uh, very important uh, to those of us in indigenous studies and acknowledgement of place. So I am calling you from Tongva Gabrieleño territory, and I acknowledge that it is a privilege to work on Tongva Gabrieleño land and to teach American Indian history here on Tongva Gabrieleño land. So I just have another very basic question from listening to some of your talks on, on YouTube and listening to some previous podcasts with you. You often use the term Indian rather than Native American. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, this is something that we think a lot about a great deal in American Indian studies. In this particular case, in this book, amid the terror and mass murder of 1846 to 1873 in California, dislocation and tribal fluidity, K 
characterize California Indian life. And forced removal to small distant reservations was not uncommon, and multiple tribes were often packed together, and people were fleeing. So where sources create an uncertainty as to tribal identity, I follow the 21st century California Indian practice of using the term Indian or California Indian. But I also want to make this book accessible to non-specialists. And so I use the commonly known names for California tribes rather than the names that they sometimes use for themselves in their own language. That said, um, I'm always uh, interested in making things specific. And in thinking about that term Indian, one of the issues is that it's really difficult to know what to call the hundreds of thousands of people who flooded into California before, during, and after the gold rush. You know, they saw themselves as settlers creating order out of chaos. And California's indigenous people saw them in the opposite way. They saw them creating chaos out of order. So the terminology for them is, is equally problematic. But I arrived at really using the term Indian because that is what people in Indian country, which is a legal term in United States law, what people in Indian country called themselves. And I guess the long and the short of it is that when I tried to use the term Native American in my many visits to California Indian communities as I worked with them in the preparation of this manuscript, I was often met by laughter and people said, we know you, you're amongst us, you don't have to use that academic term. You're in Indian country, you can call us Indians. So that was how I arrived at using that term. But to step back for a minute, the term Indian is because of Columbus's great mistake. Of course, when he first reached the Caribbean islands, he thought that he had reached the East Indies. And so he began to use this term Indios. And that then later entered the English language in about the 16th century and became this common denominator term for thousands of different indigenous peoples from the shores of the Arctic to the tip of Patagonia. So everyone in American Indian studies continues to struggle with this problem because it's an even broader category than, say, European. It's more like the category Asian, which is perhaps so broad that it almost doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear your reasoning behind this. I think what tried to do in the book was I tried to call people by the names that they want to call themselves that are still names that the common reader would recognize. So with a lot of tribes, we actually had a discussion about which terminology to use to accurately and respectfully describe their community. Another thing I stumbled across while preparing was that you describe yourself as an activist historian. I had the aim in writing this book to try to get people to recognize that this was in fact a genocide and that it should be the source for further study, public debate, apology, and the development of new curricula for public schools, new memorials, new days of commemoration to bring this huge event into the public consciousness when it has been really systematically erased through a project of state-sponsored amnesia. 
Yes, and that brings us really to the topic also for today, and that is the American genocide. And for our listeners, maybe we should briefly explain what happened during this genocide. Sure. So uh, to very briefly summarize these events, between 1846 and 1873, California's Indian population plunged from perhaps 150,000 individuals to not more than about 30,000 survivors. And while disease, dislocation, and starvation were the cause of many of these deaths, the near annihilation of California's Indian peoples was in fact a product of state-sanctioned mass murder and vigilante violence facilitated by California officials. So during this period of time, there were hundreds of individual massacres there were 24 state militia expeditions uh, launched against California Indian people, which were funded explicitly by the state of California. They raised up to $1.51 million to fund these operations, which is a huge amount of money at the time. And then the United States federal government reimbursed the state of California for almost a million dollars. And then during the American Civil War, the United States Army took over the killing process. So it became an explicitly federal project. So in total, we can document that there were 9,400 to 16,100 documented deaths. And we can see that thousands of people were killed, not only by state militiamen, but also by regular United States Army soldiers and by vigilantes who operated with an impunity that was really quite explicitly communicated to them by the state, given the fact that there were virtually no successful prosecutions by the state of California for crimes against California Indian people. And so at the same time that this kind of mass murder is going on, survivors are being enslaved. There was a a vibrant and thriving slave market in California that ensnared tens of thousands of California Indian people. And those slave raiding operations were themselves often genocidal. They were violent when they attacked communities and then individuals were scattered. So it was very difficult for communities to reproduce themselves either biologically or socially. And then once in systems of slavery, California Indian people were often worked to death. And this is um, quite well documented in the historical record. And finally, there were the reservations. And the reservations were places of institutionalized malnutrition. Sometimes at some of them, we know that the regular caloric value of rations was as low as 160 calories per person per day for working California Indian people. And that is not a caloric value that can sustain life for very long. We also know from official federal reports that people were starving to death at some of these reservations, that they were the subject of forced labor regimes, uh, repeated sexual assault, kidnapping, etc. So all in all, it was very amazing to me in the research that California Indian people survived. So at the same time that this is a story of catastrophe and horror, it's also a story of incredible human survival against almost impossible odds. 
And again and again and again, when I talk to California Indian people and they tell me their family's story, they are descended from a woman who is hidden as a baby in an overturned basket while the entire village was slaughtered by militiamen or soldiers or vigilantes. So California Indian people, through their tenacity and their intelligence, survived this. And that part of the story I found deeply inspiring. And it was one of the things that nurtured and sustained me as I moved during years of research in the archives through a landscape of almost unmitigated horror. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that when you study such things. I mean, it must really get to you, especially since you're a Californian yourself, right? Absolutely. There were many days when I would shudder and I would really have to force myself to walk into the archives because I knew that even reading the newspapers, these crimes were really hidden in plain sight and I was going to encounter them. And there were many times when sitting at the computer or in front of a microfilm reader or in front of a very old book, I just had to stop and weep because these stories were so awful to contemplate. I understand. You were the first historian to uncover the full extent of this genocide. Why has nobody looked at this before? Well, if you look at the bibliography of this book, you'll get a sense perhaps of why it hasn't been done before. While these events were hidden in plain sight, they were scattered. So I read hundreds of different sources, uh, not only newspapers, but the records of the California State Militia, United States Army reports, materials from the Office of Indian Affairs, and many, many journals and collections of letters and memoirs to try to bring all of this together. And I thought that this was important enough that I spent extra an extra year in the archives even after I earned my PhD. My dissertation was on this topic because I wanted to make sure that I'd really gotten everything. And I'm sure that there are some events that will be revealed that are not in the book, but so far it seems that there aren't really many things that were overlooked. And it seemed to me that it was really important to document as much of this as I could from the written archival record. So this is not a book based upon hundreds of interviews in the field with a tape recorder. I was thinking about the way that Holocaust studies developed, and I thought it was very important to build the story primarily upon documents created by the perpetrators and by bystanders. And while there are the voices of, oh, I think 60 or 70 different California Indian people who are survivors, the majority of the material here is as much as possible the official record. So the major newspapers of the day and the government and government agency reports. Because if you think about building a kind of legal case to prove that this event happened, the evidence of the highest value to a prosecutor would of course be the evidence of admissions of guilt by perpetrators and evidence provided by perhaps neutral bystanders. That makes perfect sense. I think a question you get a lot is about, you say this is a genocide, and that's, of course, a very strong claim. How can you really say that? 
So the rubric that I'm using to analyze these events as genocide is the 1948 United Nations Convention on the Punishment and Crime of Genocide. And so for a prosecutor to successfully convict a defendant of the crime of genocide, they need to prove two things. First, they need to prove evidence of intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. So in terms of the intent portion of the argument, the intent to destroy California Indian people was only very thinly veiled. There were newspaper editors who encouraged vigilantes and militiamen and soldiers to exterminate. They talked about extermination wars. And the intent to destroy was also pretty clearly articulated by major leaders, uh, by senators, by governors. So for example, in 1851, California Governor Peter Burnett declared, and I quote, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. And the very next year, the United States Senator John Weller, representing California, and a man who would become governor in 1858, he went further and he told his Senate colleagues in Washington, D.C. that California Indians, and I quote, will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man. And Weller argued that, and I quote, the interest of the white man demands their extermination. So the issue of intent is pretty clear, not only in words, but also in deeds, because these policies went on and on and on for years and it took so long because California Indians were fairly skilled at evading massacres, but they were eventually overwhelmed by the relentlessness of the hunts and the huge resources that state and federal officials poured into these Indian hunts, as well as the officials that are the, the resources that local communities poured into Indian hunting. Uh, local communities would hire Indian killers to go out for extended periods of time. Sometimes local communities offered scout bounties or head bounties, and people would come in with bags full of heads in burlap sacks strapped to the sides of their mules to claim their, their bounties. We can see the intent both in words and in deeds. And then the UN Genocide Convention specifies five different kinds of crimes that constitute genocidal crimes. And all of those crimes occurred in California. The one that this book really focuses on is the crime of killing, because that's in a certain way the easiest crime to prove when you want to count numbers and, and document genocide. But it's it was also important, I think, because that is those are the kinds of crimes that everyone understands as genocide. There's not really a lot of debate about if you commit over 300 massacres, as happened in California, that's pretty clear evidence not only of the crimes of killing, but also of the intent through the repetition of those acts over and over again across time and space. You call it a killing machine in your book. And then the next chapter, you talk about the perfection of the killing machine, I think. So as they built the killing machine, they took the idea of territorial and state militias, which goes back in United States history to the colonial period, and they began to focus the use of those state militias in California on Indian hunting. 
But they did a lot to perfect that system. Not only were there multiple bills passed by the state legislature and then bills passed by the United States Congress to fund these militia operations, but they also did things like uh, General Kibbe, the head of the California state militias, he wrote a manual on how to carry out these kinds of operations. And Jefferson C. Davis, who would go on to be the president of the Confederacy, but was then the Secretary of War, he sent crates of military manuals to Kibbe to be distributed as Christmas gifts to his officers. And as time went on, these Indian hunting operations became much more efficient. They became smaller, more economical, but more lethal as time went on, as they learned how to hunt and kill human beings. And ultimately, in the Civil War, as I said before, the United States Army took over. So during the Civil War years, about 14,500 California men volunteered for the United States Army, and over 7,000 of those men remained in California to hunt California Indians. And they didn't have to worry about budgetary considerations and being fiscally careful. So they were able to stay in the field for years at a time, hunting people down, and they had virtually unlimited resources. So they were able to bring cannons and many more horses, and they had many more men, thousands of men, to deploy in the cause of hunting down surviving California Indian people. And the hunting continued even after the United States Civil War. The last major U.S. Army operation against California Indian people was the Modoc War of 1872 to 1873, which also involved militiamen, both from Oregon and California. And that war also had pretty explicitly genocidal aims. They weren't able to actually carry them out. But even when the Modocs surrendered, they hanged some of the leaders and then decapitated them and sent their severed heads to the U.S. Army War College in Washington, D.C. for preservation and display. So this process continued for a very long time. And it, it really only ended because there weren't very many California Indian people left alive at that point. And because lawmakers began to change the legal system in California to treat California Indians more as people, began to come into protection by state laws at that, at that very time as the Modoc War was closing. How could this go on for so long? I mean, this period you described, that's almost 40 years between 1846 and 1873. So why? Why? Well, one of the things that made genocide possible in California was the huge tidal wave of immigrants who surged into California during these years. So before the gold rush, there were 13 or 14,000 non-Indian people in California. And as early as 1860, there were more than 368,000 of them. So this is the single largest mass migration in 19th century United States history. So it, it's a lot of people. And they're coming from South America, Australia, East Asia, Europe, the Eastern United States. And this provides the manpower. But these people who came, came heavily armed. They were anticipating violence. So bystanders looking at overland immigrants coming from the eastern United States sometimes describe them as walking arsenals. And the art from the period shows us this, that a single miner would go into 
the placers into the mining regions with a shotgun and a brace of pistols and maybe also a rifle and a bowie knife. So they were heavily armed. They came in large numbers. And then the state government had money because of the gold rush. And the federal government did not want to staunch that flow of gold. They wanted it coming in because it was helping to drive the United States economy. It was hugely enriching the United States. So the factors of manpower, weapons, and gold created a kind of perfect storm. And then once the killing started, people who participated found that the killing was highly remunerative. Not only would they be paid for their time, they were paid sometimes much more than they could earn, even as a very successful gold miner. But they were also paid for the rental of their horse and the rental of their weapon. And local merchants made huge amounts of money selling them supplies at inflated prices. So once the state government and then the federal government made it clear that they would reimburse people for these kinds of operations, people saw that it was a very profitable thing to engage in because not only were they getting paid and getting reimbursed, but they could also take everything that California Indian people had. They could take their gold, they could take their gold mining claim, they could seize their lands. And then on top of that, the United States government provided bounty land warrants. So people who participated in these operations also were given California Indians land by the federal government. So all of these factors combined to make this a very politically popular program, especially once the federal government made it clear that they would essentially pay for all. And by the way, the federal government, I forgot to mention this, the army gave the militias most of their weapons and much of their ammunition and accoutrements. So the state of California didn't have to pay for all of these rifles and shotguns and pistols and what have you. Yes, I understand. It's a lot of factors coming together, creating a situation that is beneficial for the people who are participating. This podcast episode is in our blog on diversity. I read in your book that prior to this genocide, there was a very rich diversity in the Indian culture. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? California, before the arrival of colonists, was an incredibly diverse spot on earth. There were over 60 major tribes in California speaking perhaps as many as 100 separate languages as distinct from each other as French is from Chinese now, and with a wide variety of political systems, cuisines, and, and even architecture and clothing. So when we think about California Indians, it's hard to really generalize. There are people whose culinary cornerstone was acorns, which they ground into flour and made into bread and used to thicken soups and stews. There were people whose food security keystone was pinion nuts. These are pine nuts, which they would roast or grind into a powder or make into a paste. So just thinking about the food that people ate, it's, it's highly diverse. And there are also so many different political systems. There are systems where people had a male and a female leader. There are political systems in which 
people inherited their leadership roles, and there are other systems in which people had to earn those leadership roles. When I started to read about all of it, it was just sort of staggering to me how different it was in different places, that in some areas, people hunted deer by putting a whole deer skin on themselves so that they could approach the deer in kind of in camouflage, appearing to be a deer themselves. And then in other places, people used dogs to drive deer into canyons where they had prepared traps that they would force the deer into. In some places, people hunted with spears. In some places, people hunted with throwing sticks. And in some places, people hunted with bow and arrow. So it's really an incredibly diverse place. And it's very difficult to say anything that is really stereotypical about California Indian people. It's also important, I guess, just to note how dense the population was. Archaeologists and anthropologists believe that California was the most densely settled place north of Mexico in pre-Columbian North America. So that's part of why it was possible for so many people to be hunted and killed. There were simply so many of them. And they didn't have the martial traditions in most of California that allowed them to mount a large-scale military defense in the face of these assaults. So most California Indian people did not have warrior societies. They did not have a, a system for large-scale sustained warfare. It just was not part of their experience. In Northern California, for example, most conflicts were settled. A battle ended when the first person was wounded. Whichever side inflicted that wound won, and that was the end of the battle. So when people came to villages and killed women and children and elders and men, it was utterly shocking for especially Northern California Indian people who had no idea that this was even a possibility that humans could behave this way toward other humans. They gave the newcomers names like the long knives and the killers because they seemed to behave in ways that were totally incredible and outside the bounds of any prior experience. Let's take a leap uh, to the present. Your book was published in 2016. What happened then? What influence had your book on how the Indian culture was viewed and what happened then? Well, one of the things that, that was quite fortunate was that the book began to be reviewed in major news outlets almost right away. And then it came into the hands of former governor of California, Jerry Brown. And he and I began to have a series of conversations. Then he ended up inviting me to the California state capitol, the Sacramento, where I presented on the book. And that, that really changed the way the book was received because suddenly California Native American Heritage Commission started distributing the book to tribal chairmen and chairwomen up and down the state. And California tribes started inviting me to present about the book. And one of the things that happened that has finally come to fruition is that in September, we launched the Digital Atlas. And this new Digital Atlas was an idea that Jerry Brown and I came up with over dinner in Sacramento one night, that we would have a, a Digital Atlas run by the state of California as a kind of portal for sharing information about California Indian people. 
So all 109 federally recognized tribes can upload any kind of information they want about themselves, as can all of the state recognized tribes. There are quite a few tribal nations that are recognized by the state of California, but not by the United States federal government. And they can upload legal documents like their tribal constitution or their civil law code or their criminal code, but also videos of dances or photographs of material culture like potteries, basketry, and et cetera. And then one of the things that, that we did first was to put all of the information about killings from my book onto the website. So you can look at a region of California, click on that, open it up, and you can see a table with all of the massacres that happened in that small region in chronological order. And you can see when it happened, where it happened, how many people were killed. And then you can also click on a link and open the primary sources. So you can see the newspaper article or the militia report or a congressional investigation that describes that particular homicide or massacre. And this has already become quite important for California Indian people, not only those who are recognized by the state of California, but I've been in contact with a variety of different communities who are seeking federal recognition, and they're using this information to show the federal government, you should recognize this because the reason we're having difficulty proving cultural continuity across time is that you supported the state of California in trying to physically exterminate us. And here's the documented proof that has been gathered by this UCLA professor. We've also done things on that website that I'm very excited about to make California Indians more visible in the landscape. So we're mapping all of California with indigenous names. So you can be driving on the freeway and open up this website on your phone and you can see on whose indigenous land you're driving. And you can also see things like the name of that mountain over there has a different name to the indigenous people of this area than the colonizers name that, that we've given it. So this is an, a huge ongoing digital humanities project, but it's pretty exciting because it's a, it's a give and take where eventually most of the information on the website will have been provided by California Indian people themselves. And it's a way for them to make their history and their culture and their laws and their survival legible to the wider non-Indian community. So California has tens of millions of people and only about 150,000 of them are California Indians. And this is a way to sort of create a bridge between the communities. It's also already being used by educators, not only at the high school level, but also at the college and graduate student level, because there's been no place on the web before where so much data about California Indian people is available. And where it is in an interactive form. So for example, there's a, an interactive map of economic relationships in the pre-colonial period in California. So you can see not only which resources a tribe tended to produce, but you can see, you can click and things will open up and show you, here's where obsidian is going from Yana people in the Southern Cascades to Patwin people in the Sacramento River Valley. And not only are they selling to them obsidian to make arrowheads and knives and spear points, but they're also selling them their very tightly woven baskets, so tightly woven that they're waterproof. 
but then here are the things that the Pat winner is selling back to the Yana. So that can kind of help people to understand the complexity of indigenous economies. You know, they can see that seashell dentalium, which is currency being manufactured on Catalina Island off of the coast of Southern California is a currency that spreads out all over Southern California and even goes far outside California to distant locations like Acoma Pueblo out in New Mexico, for example. You could also see, I think, very interesting from that map that most of our interstate highways and our state highways are built directly on top ancient traditional California Indian highways that, you know, that people would walk on in the era before horses and before cars. The other thing I think that, that has been important about the book is that it's become a tool for California Indian people to use in a whole wide variety of ways. So I've been involved in substance abuse prevention seminars where we use the book to help people to understand their history. Tribal leaders have used it to help young folks to understand what they're up against, that this is the, the deep history. And another thing that happened from the book is that people often understood that these things happened in their region to their tribal nation and to the tribal nations contiguous to them and around them. But tribal chairmen and chairwomen often tell me, I didn't realize that this happened up and down the state of California and that we all have this shared experience together. So in a strange way, it may have generated a, a new sense of unity among the many hundreds of diverse communities that are California Indian people. So has there been an official acknowledgement and apology for this genocide? So after I gave my talk in Sacramento at Governor Jerry Brown's invitation, he became the first governor of the state of California to acknowledge that a genocide had happened here in California. And he made that acknowledgement publicly in, I think, uh, the summer of 2017. And that created a lot of buzz, especially in an Indian country here in California, but also in Sacramento. And so his successor, Governor Gavin Newsom, who is the current governor, he then apologized in the autumn of 2019. And his public apology is the first time that any governor in any U.S. state has officially apologized for the genocide of indigenous people in that state. So this was kind of a landmark moment, not only in California history, but in United States history. And as part of his public apology for genocide, it is very explicit. He established a kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is staffed by California Indian people from the different regions of California to investigate the history of the state of California's relationships with California Indian people. And they will not be done with their work for several years, but I do think that they are going to be addressing the issue of genocide and what the state of California might do in response. Now, while all of that is happening at, at the highest level, there's also been a lot happening at a local level. And I know about it because I've been asked to write letters of support. So for example, last month, 
the city of Santa Barbara, which is a large Southern California city on the coast, changed the name of a street, which was called Indio Muerto, meaning dead Indian in Spanish. And the Barbareño Shumash people brought this before the Santa Barbara City Council, and the city council voted unanimously to change the name of that street. I don't think that people understood before that Dead Indian Road, which appears in a lot of Oregon and California places in various forms, is a kind of glorification of that violence. Likewise, a number of schools named after the people who were major perpetrators have since been changed. There used to be a lot of Burnett High Schools because he was the first U.S. governor, first civilian U.S. governor of California. And some of those schools have changed their names. And I'm also trying to help people, officials, to understand who the people are that they are maybe inadvertently glorifying. So I gave a speech at the headquarters of the California National Guard. They invited me up there. And there was a portrait of William C. Kibbe, the man who I mentioned before, who was the head of the state militias during much of this mass murder. And I suggested to the current general in charge that he might want to remove that large celebratory portrait since that person was essentially a genocide perpetrator at a high level who not only led murderous expeditions himself, but also helped to organize and equip many other murderous expeditions. So one of the factors, issues that we face in California is that we not only have streets and schools named after the genocide perpetrators, we have entire cities and mountains and lakes and rivers named after these people. They're part of the the landscape. And that does a double disservice. First of all, we're celebrating people who are completely unworthy of adoration. And secondly, we're erasing thousands and thousands of years of indigenous presence. So there are moves afoot all over the state to change place names in order to remove the names of these genocide perpetrators and perhaps replace them with California Indian names the names that have marked these lands for many thousands of years before Europeans and South Americans and Asians and Africans arrived here. Are these findings or things that you put forth, is this ever questioned or neglected as fake news? Have you met any of those reactions? No, I think maybe, maybe it's surprising given current political discourse in the United States, but You know, this book has almost 200 pages of appendices at the end, which very clearly locate each and every killing. Not only the killings of California Indian people by non-Indians, but also killings of non-Indians by California Indians. And that evidence, I think, has been very important, not only as a kind of commemoration, I, I I created those because I thought we really needed some kind of memorial. We need to remember and we need to see the scope and the scale of this mass murder. But also, it's a way of really showing people that this is not rhetoric. These are facts on the ground. And these are facts reported by hundreds and hundreds of different accounts, many, many different eyewitnesses 
And sometimes for a large scale massacre, we have eight or even a dozen different accounts of that massacre. So we can kind of see it from many different angles. And while the numbers are not precisely agreed upon in each and every event, we can get a real sense of the scope. That's why I said, for example, that there's sort of a range of known of known killings because there are high-end and low-end estimates for these things. But the precision, I think, is very important. Everything that we've learned from the emergence of Holocaust denial has to do primarily with disputation of numbers and questions about forensic evidence. Forensic evidence is something that I decided to pretty much expunge from the book because until I started visiting California Indian communities, I did not realize that the robbing of California Indian graves is an ongoing concern for indigenous communities here. There are some things that I had to take out in order to protect the remains of those ancestors. But we even get a sense of, of that problem just from here at UCLA, since I've been here, we've almost finished returning all of the ancestors that our collections held. And it was, it was a very disturbing number of people who had been exhumed and collected as specimens. I did not know about this genocide at all, actually, before talking to you. But then on the other hand, I'm not from California or not from the USA. But it turns out a lot of Americans and Californians don't know about this either, or didn't know, at least until you wrote the book. They didn't know about this dark part of their own history. How can that be? I think that there's been a process of institutionalized amnesia, as I said before. You know, we have very, very assiduously kept California Indian history out of the public curriculum. The only requirement for public school teachers is to teach California Indian history during the fourth grade. And then most teachers teach what they call the mission project, which involves fourth graders building a mission model, one of the 21 Franciscan missions that was built in California in the Spanish and, and Mexican period. And those come in kits or people build them out of sugar cubes. So those fourth graders are being taught to sweeten the bitterness of atrocity by focusing on building a model of a California mission. So a group of us who are University of California professors from different campuses have been working together to create curricular suggestions, not only for the fourth grade, but for kindergarten all the way through the end of high school to try to bring this rich history and all of this fantastic idea first California Indian culture to our youth. Because right now, I think they're really being denied. They're, they're being denied the fabulous cornucopia of information that scholars have gathered about California Indian people. And it would be possible to do field trips. For example, here in Los Angeles, you could go up to the beach in Malibu and visit a Shumash village and see their houses and see crafts being made. You could get into a redwood ocean-going canoe, learn about people regularly paddling out to the Channel Islands and back for commerce and connections. Museums are, are increasingly aware of California Indian history. The Autry Museum of the American West here in Los Angeles has become much more focused 
on California Indian history and culture and events just over the last 20 years. But we don't have a way currently built into the system for teachers to present this material. There's also been some moves forward on curriculum development in other ways. We had a bill just a few years ago to allow the teaching of a one-year-long Native American studies course in our public high schools. So the curricular development for that is ongoing. So I'm hopeful that these things will eventually come into the public consciousness more. But it's difficult when American Indian history and California Indian history in California is largely being taught only at the university level and really doesn't happen in kindergarten through 12th grade. And that's also something that you talk about is the, the healing process. And I guess that's a part of it, of com coming to terms with your own history and process it. Well, I think that California Indian people uh, have really taken the lead on that process. They are doing things like commemorative gatherings at the anniversary date of a major massacre, candlelight vigils, or walks to retrace the steps of forced relocation marches, like the Konkau Maidu Trail of Tears, to remember and to honor the dead. And I don't know that they're always focused on healing for non-Indian people, but these are important events to acknowledge and remember, I think, for those communities. And that's, that's why they, they are doing these things. It's impossible to bring back the dead. You can't do that. But I do think that it is our duty to be honestly telling the story of what happened to them. Not only so that their lives may be honored, but also so that we can uncover the crimes that the people who killed them very successfully seem to have gotten away with. And that's important not only for California, but for the world, because we don't want mass murderers to get away with it. And we don't certainly want mass murders to be celebrated 150 years after they committed their crime by having cities and mountains and streets and schools named after them. So before we talked about this rich diversity that there was in the Indian culture, Can this be restored in any way? Well, many of us are certainly working toward that goal. California Indian communities, many of them are deeply involved in language preservation and language restoration. So people are publishing language dictionaries and grammar textbooks. There are new schools in California, charter schools, where The priority is on California Indian language and culture and history and indigenous knowledge. We have a, a new tribal college here in California, which is run by and for California Indian people. And I think there is a lot of emphasis on that richness of culture that you talked about and bringing that into the public eye, not only through education, but also through more public uh, venues outside of universities and schools like museums, state parks, national parks, to try to make that richness of indigenous culture 
not only more visible, but also more legible to outsiders. So they can understand not only that they're seeing something that is California Indian, but to understand what it is and what it means. So you were a scholar here, as I already said, in 2018-2019. What can we in Sweden learn from you, from your research that you have done on the Californian Indians? Well, first of all, I had an absolutely incredible year at SCAS. It was one of the most exciting intellectual experiences of my life. And I was exposed to a lot more Swedish history than I ever had been before. What are, what are the lessons maybe from this project? Well, one, one thing that I learned is that you may think you know about the place where you live, but there are probably a lot of hidden histories that you don't know about. I was really surprised. I was born and raised in California, and I was surprised by much of this history that I was finding. I didn't realize the extent or the depth of this genocide. But another broader idea that I think I have come away from all of this study with is that there is no safe level of racism. It is a very fast and a very slippery slope from casual comments of othering and disrespecting people who are different from you to something that is a, a living nightmare, a hell on earth of a massive scale. Because if you read the kind of things that people were writing and saying in 1846 and 1847, those casually racist comments, those ideas about somehow getting rid of California Indian people, very quickly became a highly organized state-sponsored project to physically eliminate all California Indians. And in my study of genocide, whether it's in California or the work I've done on German Southwest Africa or Tasmania in Australia or the Holocaust, it seems to happen with quite surprising rapidity that people can go from hateful rhetoric to mass murder. So you already said SCAS was a wonderful place to be, a great intellectual experience for you. What do you miss now being back in California? Well, COVID makes everything very different. Right now, not only do I miss the collegiality and the intellectually supercharged atmosphere at SCAS, but I, I really miss being with my own colleagues at UCLA, at my home university, because I don't get to see them nearly as much as I once did. But one of the things that really stands out for me about SCAS that really inspired me was the collegium support for curiosity-driven research to allow people to really explore something that is simply interesting to them without a clear policy application in mind, without necessarily directly trying to engage in some kind of ongoing intellectual debate but simply to dive deep into a question that, that they think is interesting to them. There aren't very many places like that in the world where you can simply spend a whole year working on something that is, is interesting to you simply because you're curious about it. And I just found that terrific. 
And the other thing that I really enjoyed about it was the interdisciplinary conversations. They were just remarkable to be learning about ancient languages from the various eminent linguists who were at SCOS during my year there, to be learning about post-Soviet Russian agriculture and to be editing a colleague's chapters on that topic in my off time. It was so intellectually stimulating. I came up with so many new projects that I started at SCOS. I wrote a couple of articles while I was at SCOS, but I also just came up with a, <laughs> a huge number of books that I want to write and articles that I want to write. It was just like an incredibly hyper-productive time for me. Thank you very much for being on SCAS Talks. It was a pleasure to talk to you and to learn more about your research. I'd just like to thank everyone at SCAS and I would like to thank you for this interview. And um, I, I hope that you are all safe during these very difficult times. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the third and final episode on the topic of diversity. Previously, I have talked to anthropologist Elise Waterston about the search for light in dark times and to peace academic Inan Östermetarstan about academic freedom and democracy in the post-truth era. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. We have now a total of nine episodes, three on different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, three on the study of languages, and three on the topic of diversity. We are sure there is something of interest for everybody. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. We will be back with new episodes and hope that you want to join us then as well. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy. Bye for now. Bye.